Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman, and with me today is the award-winning Canadian cartoonist, Seth. Seth is known for his work on Palookaville, on Wimbledon Green, on Clyde's Fans, and a host of other graphic novels that are all sort of inspired by the old New Yorker cartoons of like the 1920s, I would say. So welcome, Seth. How are you? Good. It's nice to meet you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, it's, it's nice to meet you too. We got uh, acquainted through your friend uh, Chester Brown. Uh, I had Chester in the studio uh, on one of our episodes and he, I guess, was impressed with my interview style and he uh, recommended that I talk to you. Yeah, he gave you a good review. Yeah, he also talked about you during, during our interview uh, just saying that his autobiographical work was very much influenced uh, by you, particularly uh, It's nice. a Good Life uh, If You Don't Weaken, which is, uh, you know, your work from 1996, the mm-hmm. autobiographical work. So, but before we get into your work and your techniques mm-hmm. and things like that, I just want to get a sense of what your early life was like. What was your childhood like? Where were you born? Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is a Canadian, Toronto-centric comic sure. podcast, so go well, ahead. I was born, I mean, I grew up in a lot of small towns in southwestern Ontario. I was born in Clinton, Ontario, which is uh, on Lake Huron, but uh, I didn't live there very long. My dad was in the military then, and he was actually getting to the point just around where he got out of the Air Force. So at that point, we moved near London, Ontario, because he was taking... Um, some adult education, right? And then he became a shop teacher later, and we moved, so we moved around a lot when I was a kid, and eventually, I sort of grew up primarily, I would say, in two small towns. One's called Strathroy, which is near London, Ontario. Okay. And then the other one was called Tilbury, which is near Windsor. Um, so these were small towns. I don't remember what the population of Strathroy is, but but Tilbury was only about five thousand people. Wow. And I I have older brothers and sisters, but they were all much older. So I grew up with primarily just my parents, like an only child. Okay. 
And that was, I think, the defining experience for me because my parents were much older. My friends, their parents were, I guess, probably maybe in their 30s when they, we were kids, and my parents were in their 50s. So the world that they talked about was pretty much the world of the war, um, of their childhood before the war. That culture that they grew up in, I think, was sort of imparted into me, which is probably one of the reasons why eventually I kind of ended up being very attracted to that early 20th century period. Okay. Um, maybe I, I think of that often as the, the root of like my aesthetic interest in that is the kind of close relationship I had with my parents who were old. Okay. Uh, but eventually, I mean, at the end of high school, I, I moved to Toronto to go to art school. And I lived in Toronto for about 20 years. And that was probably, it's interesting, like, what, what can I say about this? It's like, what's more defining in your life, your childhood or your, you know, your youth? Um, those two periods were both quite different, mm -hmm. but both profoundly, you know, made me who I am today. Right, yeah. right. So what kinds of things would your parents tell you or stories that they would say that would get you, that got you interested in the, in the 1920s period? Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't like they were particularly attracted to the period. It's not like they would have been saying to me like that this was a, a superior time period than the present. They didn't think along those kind of lines. Mm -hmm. They were both very like blue-collar types. My mother was, um, she was a, a Cockney from, uh, from England, and my father was from Prince Edward Island. And so when they talked, they were both good storytellers, though. And when they talked about um, their past, they just imparted, um, I guess... Like everything in our house, everything was just, it was just, it was about that time. They talked a lot, my dad talked a lot about the Depression, and my mother talked an awful lot about World War II because she was in London during the Blitz. And those stories sort of became like the background, I think, for my feeling of that time. I mean, when I would sit down, you know, back in, how old are you? I am 31. 31, okay, so you're pretty young. Yeah. Um, 1985. When I, when I grew up, like the way television operated, for example, was that um, it's very different than now. Most of the television was like um, filler. They still they had a lot of time to fill, and it was mostly filled up with um, old pop culture from the early 20th century. So you turn on the TV, and 90% of the time it would be like a movie from the 30s or the 40s on. Um, the cartoons you watched as a kid were stuff from decades earlier. Um, that kind of um, immersion in the pop culture of that time. And I mean, when I'd sit down with my mother and watch TV, what would we watch? We'd watch something from the 30s or 40s. Wow. So you just get a feeling for the times without thinking about it. Right. It's not like as a kid, I, if anybody had asked me, I would have ever said a single word about like the kind of concerns I had later. Um, I loved, you know, monster movies from the 50s, but it wouldn't have been because they were from the 50s. It was just that they were a monster movie. Right. And it was a bonding period between you and your mother. Exactly. It also, later in life, takes on a sentimental quality. Mm -hmm. start, um, I think I probably associate a kind of comforting feeling with the pop culture of that era in a way that I don't with the pop culture that comes along after I'm like 20 years old or something. Right. Sort of the opposite. Like you have good associations with that rather than like rejecting it as like boring or your yeah, parents. Exactly. Media or that yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. I think there's, I didn't really have any kind of rebellion period with my parents. When my time came to go to Toronto is probably when like I went through the phase that most people go through when they're earlier teens. Mm -hmm. And I was out of their, out of their sight then. So the wild times I would have had in my early 20s is probably like the same kind of thing people did when they were 15. Right. So 
I never had any period with them where there was any of that kind of conflict. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had conflict. Everybody does. But. Right. So what made you go to art school? I'm sure in your childhood, were you interested in comics? How did that oh, interest yeah. develop? Well, you know, it's funny. This is the other thing, too. It's like you didn't have a lot of access to information when you lived in a small town. Mm -hmm. I often think about why I'm interested. You know, I have a strong interest in how things came to you in that world before the internet. Right. Um, you, in a small town, you had about three or four sources of information. You had the television, you had the library, you had the newsstand. Maybe you could include school in there, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Although I really feel like I learned almost nothing in school. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing is, is that it was all chance. Things came to you through a certain kind of serendipity because especially in a small town, the options were limited. It's like, how many TV channels did you have? Um, what were they selling in the newsstand? Um, what was in the tiny little library? So there would be like moments you would look through your life and you'd say like, this accident of chance led me to this. And for me, with comic books, it was very simply that, I mean, I'd read comic books when I was little, every kid did, but not everybody got really interested in them. Right. For me, it was sometime around grade seven, I think, I got really interested in the old Spider-Man cartoon on television from the one from the 60s. I should uh, mention to our new listeners that uh, I interviewed uh, Paul Souls, who's oh, the really? Canadian yeah, voice of Spider-Man. <laughs> well, that's funny. So they can check that out if, if, they, if they would like. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, funny. I was just thinking, I just saw a photograph of Paul Souls the other day. So there you go. That's awesome. But um, yeah, I got interested in that, cart in that uh, cartoon. And I can remember like the kind of thought process I was going through where I wanted more of the cartoon. But you, you, know, you could only see it when it came on once a day or whatever. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, there are Spider-Man comic books. So I went down to the corner store, and I was like, oh yeah, here's a Spider-Man comic book. I remember the one it was, and I picked it up. Which it. one was it? It was an issue of what's called Marvel Tales, which was a reprint oh, issue. Yeah. And so, and it was, um, I remember it was some issue where Spider-Man fights the Black Widow. Oh, yes. And um, I remember I bought it, and I got real interested in it. And in my memory, within a year, I was buying all the Spider, all the, all the Marvel comics. But actually, I went on the internet a while ago, and I, they have a site where you can see all the comics by month to month of what was published. Right. And so I went on there and I looked to see, like, how long did it take me from that first Spider-Man to buying all the Marvel comics? It was one month. Wow. But the very next month, I was totally hooked. So I was buying the entire line. And that's, it's, and obviously, very quickly after that is when I started to be, started drawing my own comic books. Right. So what was it about the medium of comics that spoke to you and became like your chosen method mm -hmm. of telling stories? Well, probably at that age, and I was probably like, what would you be in grade seven, like 12 or something? Yeah, 12 or 13. Yeah. yeah. I, it, probably nothing in the medium would have, I would have thought to myself, I'm interested in the medium. It was subject matter. I mean, as a boy at that age entering puberty, it was all, you know, here are exciting power fantasies uh, and they're like subliminal sexual fantasies of putting on a skin-tight costume and running around and beating people up. I mean, right. that's all pretty obvious. Because Ditko hung out with Eric Stanton in his studio, right? So there's exactly. a little bit of a, a gimp costume influence. Yeah, I'd influence. say more than a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's quite a... It's funny. Yeah, when you look at those early Spider-Man comics, there's definitely something sexual going on in those drawings of Spider-Man, without right. a doubt. Yeah. But, you know, later, I think if... The interesting part about it is I think there's, especially in that period... 
probably the real reason like why I would be say have been drawing those comic books instead of say trying to make an animated cartoon was that it was something you could do it was really accessible I mean you just sat down with a magic marker and a piece of paper and some pencil crayons and there you had you made a comic book right and um, I can remember when I first started drawing them because they were so crude you could do a whole comic book like in an evening you could do like 24 pages right then of course you start trying a little harder and you start looking at the comics and wondering how did they draw them so well how did they get these lines I can remember the experience of thinking like how did they draw them so small because I didn't understand you could photo reduce a comic book. So, right. so you're like trying to draw them the size as the comic book, and you're like, I can't get that much detail into that drawing. Right. But, and so like you keep doing that. Plus, like perspectives and things like that yeah. as well, like foreshortening. And it's those a, yeah, a, a tremendous craft to try and learn when you're a kid. Yeah. But of course, like I always say, is you know, you spend 10 years doing this, and then you go to art school, mm. or for myself, I got to art school, and then it's like you suddenly realize or maybe slowly realize that you don't really want to do that anymore it's like I don't really want to you, you know your your mind gets expanded there you go there you meet other people you learn more about real art and then you're like do I really want to draw Spider-Man right and uh, and then you you realize I don't really want to draw Spider-Man but then you think but I've, I'm a cartoonist so did you always think I'm not just a fan of this yeah. I want to do this oh yeah almost immediately because I'd always liked drawing even as a little kid right so it immediately became a focus. Ah, so now I know what I want to be. Mm -hmm. So pretty early on, I thought, I want to draw comics for Marvel Comics. Yeah. And then by the time I was in art school, I was like, no, I don't want to draw for Marvel Comics anymore. I, but I still want to make comics. What was the thing that you were I, exposed to? Because was, it was too much an identity for myself. You know, you, it's like if you spent 10 years working on it, it's I always say it's like you've been tricked into being a cartoonist. Because now... It's like in art school, I would have never said to myself, well, I guess I'll be a painter. I still was very attracted to the medium. It's like that, once it's in the blood, I guess, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, at that point, I didn't have, I was like, well, what am I going to do then? And uh, I think if I hadn't been lucky to um, have found some inspiration at that point, I don't know what would have happened to me. But I was very lucky that um, around then I was introduced to uh, Love and Rockets mm -hmm. and Robert Crumb. Those two things said to me, like, oh, there is something you can do with the medium. It's not just superheroes. It's exactly. this whole thing. And actually, Love and Rockets was a perfect transition point because I was already like a little punk rocker at that point. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, it was like the same kind of identification process. Like when I was a kid, it's like you're excited by the superhero. When I was 20, I was excited by a punk rocker. Yeah. So it was like I could pour myself into an identity thing, too. Nice. Before we got on to the art school thing, though, you talked about your high school period being very different from your childhood period. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on the high school period? Yeah, well, high school is a grim period to me. I did not enjoy it much. It's funny. I think in high school is when I came to realize... How would I put this? You start to become aware of your own identity. Um, and that it's not... You don't have as many choices. How would I... I guess I'd say when you live in a small town... It's in your teen years you realize that you're, you've been identified as somebody, that if you stay in that small town, you'll be that person for the rest of your life. People, right. that's that, how they know you. And I didn't really like too much like the identity that I like acquired. I, was, I didn't think of myself as fitting in well. This was the punk rock identity? No, no. This, oh. that, this was just, I was just a regular teen. Oh, okay. Yeah, the punk rock identity didn't come along till my 20s. Good 20s. I was just a boring, 
you know, regular teenager who was trying to get along, trying to be popular, trying to do all that sort of stuff, but not succeeding at it very well. Um, I think it was a good period for me because I spent a lot of time thinking about how do people um, interact with each other, what's successful interaction, how do you talk to people, all this sort of stuff. And at that point, you're trying to get inter- you're getting interested in girls, right? So interaction yeah. becomes way more important. Oh, yeah, way more important. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it was a frustrating and unhappy time for me. I, didn't fe- I felt small in high school. I felt put upon. Uh, I'd been bullied a lot when I was uh, you know, in late, late grade school and early high school. Um, Were you a geek? Would you characterize yourself as a geek? Well, I guess so, yeah. I certainly yeah. wasn't somebody who played sports. I had no interest in sports and never did and still don't. Mm-hmm. And um, I wasn't really that interested in rock music or you know any of the typical stuff that a teenage boy would probably use. And I was very interested in comic books, but I knew not to talk to anybody about that. I didn't talk to anybody about comic books in high school ever. Because back then it was like a geeky, like oh, yeah. you were going to be bullied if you Yeah, I wasn't really sure what anyone thought about it, but I was pretty sure it was not anything that would make you more popular. <laughs> it was pretty clear. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I should mention to our listeners that we are in uh, Seth's house right now, and uh, I'm actually here in Guelph with him uh, in uh, Inkwell's End, is that, is that yep. what this is Inkwell's called? Yep, Inkwell's End, yep. And I'm, it's basically like I've been transported to that 1920s time period that you talked about earlier in our conversation, and there are all these little trinkets and toys from that that era, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of a, a bit of a mix, but let's just say from the, the 20s to the 60s. Right, right. Yeah. So so during high school, were you at all interested in uh, like that kind of thing, like toys and stuff, or was it just no. comic books? Well, I would say that as a kid, I probably... Well, how would I... I mean, I liked... I wouldn't have had any kind of aesthetic ideas in okay. that direction. Um, but certainly, I was attracted to old pop culture. I mean, I, I made a lot of model kits and, you know, old cars. And, uh, you know, I was very much into model making. I, I was a very crafty kid. Like, I liked to make things. Um, and I think that's still true. Like, I like to build, like, I build my little cardboard buildings and stuff like that. It's all right, we'll talk about very that. much a little aesthetic that comes from, I think, childhood and that sort of being able to do it yourself quality that childhood certainly had when I was a kid. There was an awful lot of craft-related activities for mm. you as a kid. I think I was pretty much in league with the culture as much as I could be. I don't think I thought of myself in any way as being out of step with the culture at that point. Right, right. Certainly when I was listening to music, I was listening to pretty much what the other kids were listening to. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I was watching Happy Days on TV or whatever crap they were showing, just yeah. like the other kids. right. Right. Um, it wasn't probably until I got a little older and started to consider things, like in my 20s, where you start to make... I think the teen years are interesting because you start to make judgments about who you are. You start making uh, identity choices, start trying to create an image for yourself, trying to re... I don't know, remold who you are somewhat from childhood. Who did you think you were and who did you want to be? Well, that's a good question. Well, who I wanted to be probably was someone that was um, well-liked and that was taken seriously. I think those would have been high in my list. I think I've always had a strong feeling of, um, a strong horror of embarrassment or humiliation from too many humiliating experiences as a, as a kid. So, And even as an adult, I think the one thing that pushes my buttons is anywhere where I start to feel embarrassed. Right. And I get like I, I think that's the only time you'll ever see me get like angry, 
I'm not a person who gets angry very easily. But when I start to feel like uh, if somebody's mocking me or um, or I feel silly, like I've made a stupid mistake, um, that's where I might likely get very touchy. Okay. Um, so I think probably in my teen years what I was trying to do is craft an image for myself that was um, like a person who was easy to get along with, but who um, hopefully was like liked and respected. But it, let's say I don't think I pulled that off. <laughs> but later, I think in my twenties, I think I did a much better job with that because the teen years were the years where you try to figure it out, and then when you get a little older, you become a bit more sophisticated about how to interact with other people. Mm-hmm. And back then, I, you know, I have seen interviews with you back then, and you had like longer jet black hair. Back then, if I Yeah, if I well, remember. in my 20s, I had a variety of hair. Yeah, okay. But I'd say the longest was like a long... I had white hair for a long time. Yeah. But that was... Yeah, that was very much... I've always been interested in what I call like identity building, which is that you can choose pretty much anything for yourself. And um, as long as you um, have the nerve to do it, you can just take on anything you like. Yeah, I, I was going to say, because as an adult, for somebody that is is you know afraid and has a is abhorrent of embarrassment and those sorts of things mm-hmm. and for somebody who took a long time in their childhood and teen years to figure out their identity you have established and embraced yeah, a very true. unique identity that's true that might open you to the types of things that you're yeah. afraid of the it's humiliation yeah. that kind of thing but yeah. you are you know you're dressed like someone from the, that era yeah you you have basically said this is who i am and you're taking on the world that way you're an yeah. iconoclast yeah in that well way. it might have to deal with taking like you say taking on the world but the other side of it might be taking control it's interesting that a lot of times we do things like when you point that out it's true it's like why if i'm afraid of embarrassment would i try to draw any attention to yeah myself? why would you not conform yeah and blend into the yeah. rest of society I've thought about this, like my wife and I often talk about it, she's quite um, flamboyant. And I say, like, we both are attention seekers, mm-hmm. but the problem is we don't really like the attention that much. Right. So that's a, a basic um, paradox, but it's true, it's like, I like, I'm not going out in the world to avoid attention, but I actually don't enjoy all that much when, um, you know, people come up to me and, you know, a lot of times people come up to me and start talking to me because of the way I'm dressed. And I think to myself, I don't really like this. Um, right. So why would I encourage it? And it makes but who knows. It makes journalists like my job harder because, you know, you think, oh, unique person. There's definitely mm-hmm. a story there that you have a very unique job and a very unique view of how you're going to present yourself to the true. world. Yeah. But you don't want the me- the attention from the media from the media. Yeah, no, it's true. And I also don't like um, being pigeonholed. Right. But I guess the thing about it is, is you have to recognize that. No matter what you do, there are complications to it. Right. And that the best thing to do is try to do what you want. As right. simple as that. Mm-hmm. I think when I was involved in the punk movement, what was interesting to me about it was I'd come from a small town where conformity was very powerful and where I was trying very hard to conform. Then I met, like, I came across a world of people that on the surface appeared to be nonconformists. But of course, any movement is about conformity. Right. So. But getting involved with that group, what was interesting about it was it was a more interesting kind of conformity. Um, in the early nightclubs in Toronto, there was a strong sense you had to build your own look or style or whatever. And even though it was within 
prescribed parameters. What era was this? Just this probably like the early 80s. Okay. okay. Like 81 to 80, mm. eight, uh, 81, say. It would okay. be about 80, 81 when I got mm. there. Um, so the parameters? Yeah, the parameters would be like, you still, you, it was punk. You didn't show up like with, um, you know, a big beard. That wasn't, be, that wouldn't have been very punk. Um, so there was, but you might be like, I'm the guy who has a, a green mohawk. Right. Or somebody else would be like, I'm the guy who's got spikes on top of his head, whatever. Mm -hmm. So people tried to like brand themselves, you could say. And that branding process was interesting because it kind of probably set me on the path of just thinking, you can pick your whatever you like and make it your own as long as you've just got the nerve to follow through. Mm -hmm. And back then the nerve was like walking around in the street and having people like, you know, call you funny names or, or maybe sometimes you'd, you'd encounter like hostility. But... Um, it was kind of what you were looking for too. Mm -hmm. You enjoyed like the attention. Well, you enjoyed it and you didn't enjoy it. Let's put it that way. Right, because mm -hmm. you were still on the outside mm -hmm. looking in, and yeah. access was restricted mm -hmm. in society yeah. a little bit. Yeah, it was a fun period though, and it really did teach me the value of doing your own thing. And so, even though eventually I got tired of the whole, the, you know, the whole uh, punk world or whatever, I think I carried on the aesthetic of make your own choices and and the kind of the branding idea right I'm gonna brand myself this way and you obviously decided that establishing your own identity and sticking to it was more important than whatever humiliation and backlash you exactly. were gonna get from it yeah yeah the occasional the occasional awkward situation is not enough to make me say I don't want to do it right so yeah it was it's certainly I'd say it's a fair exchange right right so you're in art school, you're getting influenced by all these different types of comics and art styles mm -hmm. and things like that. How did that influence the type of work you do now with the autobiographical yeah. comics and things? Well, pretty profoundly, because the first artists, like I said, that would have like I encountered at that point were um, the Hernandez brothers right. and uh, Robert Crumb. And in, even though um, the Hernandez brothers weren't doing autobiography, um, Crumb certainly had done Mm -hmm. plenty of it by that point and I think mostly what I came to me uh, I took from those early comics that I read was um, to go back to the source of real life as the subject matter um, it's interesting in that early period of uh, where the alternative comics are coming up and the underground comics are pretty much dead is that um, you could see the new artists coming along, the artists of my generation, mostly what we all did was step back from fantasy. Now, not entirely. There still was fantasy going on. Yeah, because one of your first gigs was the uh, Mr. X, yeah. right? That's yeah. sort of Yeah, that was fantasy. my first professional work. Mm -hmm. But even when I was working on Mr. X, I knew, I, I mean, I didn't know instantly, but by about the first issue or two in, I knew that that isn't what I wanted to do with my own work. Right. But I was still happy to be working on it because it wasn't, or certainly because the Hernandez brothers had worked on yes, it before it, me. Which was, so which was a big I felt influence that on was, you. Yeah, it was a great, um, what do you call it, lineage that yeah. I was jumping into. And I also thought that it was um, the style, the sort of the Art Deco approach to it appealed to me. It was of interest. Yeah, aesthetically it was very different, just to inform our listeners. Yeah. Aesthetically it was very different, very much like uh, Metropolis. Like that yeah, old, very much so. That old uh, movie, though. It was mm -hmm. one of the first science fiction films like ever made. Exactly. But 
in terms of plot and that sort of thing, it, it still followed the traditional superhero. It's superhero y, yeah. It was yeah. a bit more of a film noir fantasy, I suppose. Yeah. Like, um, the problem with Mr. X ultimately was that it just. Um, it was unsatisfying as a narrative. Right. Like, it's about a mysterious guy. And as the comics went along and you learned a bit more about him bit by bit, you kind of realized that the story could never be resolved or you'd lose what the point of the main character is. He has to remain a mystery. And that, it's like, that's great for four or five issues, but by about issue 10, it's like, it's wearing thin. And I don't remember, like, I should mention that Seth is not the creator of Mr. X. It's uh, Dean Motor and yeah. Paul Revoche. Paul Revoche... Yeah. Created the look of Batman the Animated Series for because he was for, very highly involved. In right, that, yeah. right. So, so Mister X looks similar to to Batman the Animated Series. Yeah. Um, where I'm going with that is, I never re- when people talk about Mister X, which was published by Canadian publisher, it's like Vortex yeah, Comics, Vortex, I believe. Yeah. When people talk about Mister X, they don't talk about the plot or story of Mister X. They talk the great thing about Mister X was always the aesthetics. And the look of Mr. X. Nobody yeah. mentions the plot. They always mention what it looks like. It's true. Mm-hmm. To be honest, it was the visuals that got its attention and why people were reading it, I think. I don't think its stories are particularly memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, the character is interesting. Like I think that um, Dean Motter's, like, if he gets any credit for anything, it's that he came up with um, an engaging idea and some great graphics. And then Paul Ravash came along. And like really like brought a high polished fi- finish to the early work that I can remember like before Mr. X came out, there were a series of posters Paul did that people were crazy about for about two years, I think, before the book came out. I think people might have had more interest in the posters than the book itself wow. because they were just really gorgeous and evocative. And I think that kind of explains like Mr. X's appeal is that it was, um, you know, it presented a beautiful finish. And it had, like, an idea of an underlying mystery in it. Right, and plus was, there's the nostalgia for anyone who knows oh, about yeah. Metropolis. Yeah, exactly. It, it really referenced all that early um, kind of futurism. Yeah, and noir sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, exactly. It was a good mix, but, you know, it didn't have a lot of meat on the bones. Right. And I recognized... I was on Mr. X at the exact period when I was growing more ambitious and realizing that there was better work being done out there. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't by me. So it made me more ambitious to say, like, I want to do my own work eventually. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how did you get the Mr. X gig, and then how did you leave the Mr. X gig? Yeah, the Mr. X gig came about by accident. Um, I had been doing my own comics before that. Uh, they were terrible, like really primitive early stuff where I was trying to figure out what I was doing, and I was working in a variety of different styles. I was putting together a big portfolio, kind of. And I went to the Vortex Comics office to, um, to, to see if they would publish any of this stuff. And um, I met a um, guy who was kind of art directing at that point was this cartoonist named Ken Stacy. I know Ken Stacy. Okay. And he, he looked over my stuff and he wasn't too impressed. But he took me downstairs. He's the guy who introduced me to Love and Rockets. And okay. he said, like, you should read this comic. So, um, so I did. And then I came back maybe a year later with some stuff where I'd uh, been quite influenced by Love and Rockets. And, and the work had gotten better. Still wasn't good work, but the work had gotten better. And um, I think I showed up, literally, like the moment the Hernandez brothers had quit 
and they were looking for something like that. So I can't remember exactly how it worked, but I was in the right spot at the right time. And uh, it pretty much explains the publisher, Bill Marks, too, that he would like just suddenly like pick oh, some kid who came yeah. in. Yeah. Why don't you draw it? Yeah. yeah. So, which, of course, I was not prepared for. I never had any work published before that. But I was up to it. I was like, let's give it a try. So it was just a matter of showing up at the, either at the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time. I don't know. Uh, sometimes I wish I'd never done that work. But it was an important apprenticeship. You've been listening to Speech Bubble. Back after this. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. So then, then you became unsatisfied, you wanted to do better work on your own. Yeah. What was the first work that you did? Was that It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken? No, the like, first thing was Palookaville number one. Okay. So, um, I mean, actually, no. I did a few comics, a few, you know, three-pagers, five-pagers, whatever, that right. appeared in Drawn and Quarterly before that. But I was working on a first issue, and by that point, I was, Chester Brown and I were good friends, and we had talked a lot about what we thought good comics were and we how did you meet him i met him at vortex actually um he was doing yummy fur and who was he he was doing it as a mini comic right it was he said he was like self-published sort of yeah punk zine diy type thing yeah exactly and i knew his work from that i'd written him a letter i picked up i picked up the mini comics and then i wrote him a letter and and uh, we had a couple of letters back and forth but we didn't become friends until he's I encouraged the publisher at Vortex, I was working on Mr. X, I said, you should publish this Yummy Fur book. Mm -hmm. And so um, he did. And then uh, I met Chester because we went to, uh, Bill took us to a convention down in Detroit. And so me and Chester and a very young guy named Hochi Anderson went down there. And um, Chet and I became friends on that trip. And then after that, we'd meet like once a week to have coffee or lunch or whatever and we would talk about comics Mm -hmm. and that was a very and this is before Palookaville number one but I was really I'd say that period of discussing things is when we were hashing out like what is a good comic Uh, how do you tell a good comic story and during etc etc and in that process is when we started to talk about like it should be about you know like it should come from the real world it shouldn't come just from the world of fantasy you know, we talked about like what kind of pacing was important, whether you should use narration, whether it should all just be dialogue. Do you follow the characters around? Are you allowed to make quick jumps between scenes? It was like kind of hashing out the, the uh, mechanics of what a new art form would be in the comics medium. So when I started Palookaville number one, that was my goal, was to try and do like a very straightforward autobiographical comic um, taken directly from my own life. But still influenced by that 1920s drawing style? No, I would say yes. I would say I wasn't thinking in those terms, though. You know, the funny thing was I didn't think, like, the drawing style was uh, an issue. I was very interested at that point in... To make a long story short, when I was working on Mr. X, my initial influences would have been like the Hernandez brothers. Right. But by the end of Mr. X, my main influence was probably the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. So during that period, I'd gone through like um, a kind of a transformation, but they were worlds that were connected. I went from like 
um, loving rockets to studying Hergé, to studying like Yves Chalon, to maybe like moving on at that point to starting to look at some of the early cartoonists from the 20th century in the newspapers, like people like, uh, I don't know, Billy DeBeck, or even I was very interested in Charles Schultz at this point Great. with his simple, straightforward line work. And then somewhere around there, I discovered the cartoonist of the old New Yorker, and that had a profound change on me. That's And around the time I was working on on the first issue of Palookaville, I was probably deeply immersed in an interest in those artists. And probably the work reflects something of the late, eight, late 80s, too. There's a certain stylistic approach that I see in other illustrators at that time that I was probably emulating to some degree. Right. But... I didn't think to myself, like, I'm telling a story about 1983, uh, like a punk story of when I was young, and I'm drawing it, trying to draw it in a kind of a retro style. I wasn't, I didn't see that as a schism in any way. That's interesting because Palookaville brings to mind, at least for me, brings to mind sort of a vaudevillian style title. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just, you know, with the title, the funny thing about uh, everybody I know, you pick a title, it's later, you're like, well, why did I pick that title? Right. Um, I would not pick Palookaville now. I wouldn't pick the name Seth now. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, these are the choices you make. Mm -hmm. I have a piece of paper downstairs with a bunch of names written on it from the time, and Palookaville's one of them, and there's a, they're all terrible. <laughs> but uh, that's the one that I circled. Nice. I think that it's like, you know, why did Chet pick Yummy Fur? Right. Why, um... Why did uh, Adrian Tamine pick Optic Nerve? It's like, I, I'm not sure that anybody would pick those same titles even a year or two later. Yeah, but now, Palookaville sort of makes sense with your whole aesthetic. It does. I mean, it's an old-fashioned-y kind of word. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, I'm glad that I didn't call it like Monster Zero or something. Right. You know, something that would be totally inappropriate now. Mm -hmm. One of the main things that I wanted to ask you that we sort of skipped over, and it's sort of major, why did you choose a nom de plume instead of your actual name to, yeah. to draw it. Well, it's very simply just a part of that identity building back then. It comes out of the punk years, you know, trying to... I think I picked Seth when I was, like, a little punk rocker. And um, mostly it was I was looking for a pretentious, kind of scary name, you know, and that was, uh, you know, the Egyptian god of death. Very gothy, although it was pre-goth, thank God. Um, but, if your you name know, is Seth, don't, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> But the truth is, um, I don't like the name anymore because um, every once in a while I think to myself, it's odd that this, the work is signed with a one-name name. Um, and I kind of think I would prefer if I'd stuck to my real name, but it's way too late to change it. Yeah. And um, it doesn't really matter. It is a name. Mm -hmm. It's like I'm grateful it's a real name, like a person's name. Uh, I'm glad I didn't pick some odd, you know, kind of silly, mm -hmm. made-up name. Uh, but, you know, it just reflects, it's like getting a tattoo when you're 20. Well, and do you get to sort of protect your privacy to a degree? Not really, I don't think, because oh. I don't use my real name anymore. Right. It's like people who know me only know me as Seth. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, to some degree, I mean, if you wanted to, like, phone me, it's not in the phone book. Okay. So I don't think it has anything to do with protect. It never did either. Okay. It was actually the opposite. It was an attention-seeking device rather than a way to deflect attention. Right, right. Very, very interesting. So you're doing Palookaville number one, you're going along and doing your work. Yeah. And then when did It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken come along? When did the real sort of autobiographical 
thing. Yeah, well, that's a, yeah, that's the shift. I mean, I've, I did th- about three or four issues of autobiography before I started Good Life, mm-hmm. and um, it was in, it was serialized originally in Palookaville. Mm-hmm. So when I did the first issue of that, it was a definite um, response to the earlier work I'd just done. I'd done these early issues, and they were very anecdotal, like stuff that had happened to me, like uh, about did a story about being beaten up, and then I did a story about an affair I had with a woman. And they ultimately, I found, they were failures. And so, I mean, I was trying to figure out, I was so young, too, trying to figure out what my work was. I was like, why are these failures? What don't I like about them? It's it's interesting when you're trying to figure out what you're going, what you want to do. Failures in terms of, like, nobody paid attention to them? Or no, failures? failures, and I just thought they weren't any good. Okay. Um, I thought, like, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't, love these stories mm-hmm. and I, that's when I, I think maybe up until that point I've been trying to think of what's, what should you write mm-hmm. and then the shift was like what what would you like to read mm-hmm. so Good Life was the beginning of trying to tell a story in a way that I was that I thought was subtler the earlier ones had been straightforwardly like here's some stuff that happened and I thought to myself these don't work for me because they might be fine if you and I were sitting down having a coffee and I told you about something that happened to me but I thought as a story, that's not really what I'm that interested in. I don't read books because of, this, of the plot. It's all the non-plot stuff that interests me. It's the slower stuff. It's the less tangible things. It's the ruminations. The, the ruminations, exactly. So I thought I wanted to try and write a story that had more of that. And so that was my first attempt to sit down and say, like, well, how do you structure a story like that? What's it about? Why is it... Why... Uh, what do I build it on? And so that was the one where I built it on the idea of looking for this old cartoonist. So I'll be looking for this old cartoonist, but that will be the motor of the story that allows me to just ramble on for the hundred or two hundred pages. Right. And that was the that was closer to what I, I I wanted to do. I mean, I can't read that book now. I look back at that book and it feels very young to me. But um, it was an important bridge to trying to do different kinds of work right right and uh, I'm happy I did it it taught me a lot mm-hmm. I mean even just now that you're still you know you're always like figuring out what you think is what the real work will be like the ne- now that I've just finished Clyde fans I have um, a new book I'm going to be starting and I feel like I finally figured out exactly what I want to do what is that thing not in a yeah. specific sense but yeah in a in a more general broader sense yeah um I, I can't go into any detail really at all, mm-hmm. with, um, but I would say it is about recognizing more deeply what you, why you read other works. So you're like looking at all the types of books I read, what do I value in these? What am I seeking in them? What, do I, what would I edit out of them? And over now at this age in my 50s, I have a much clearer idea when I watch something or read something where I say, um, this would have been better if they hadn't have had this in it. For example, like um, when I went and saw, um, what was that last film by Wes Anderson about the Hotel Budapest? Yeah, the like, Grand Budapest yeah, Hotel. Yeah, I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it. And I thought, why didn't I like that film? And I thought, because what it would have interested me is the life in the hotel, and most of the movie was them running around everywhere else. I thought right. I would have kept it in the hotel. Right. And so I, that's the kind of like um, thing where I'd say, well, why would I enjoy it better if they stayed in the hotel? And I thought, because I like stories that are set in closed environments, small places, where I like a little microcosm. 
So after years and years of that kind of thinking, you eventually get to a point where you have a list of about 10 things, which you're like, these are the things that I really like, and I want to write the book that is exactly those things. Right. Now, of course, there's a recognition that when you finish that, it won't be something you'll ever want to read again, because you never enjoy your own work. But it's what you, I think that's what you're ultimately always striving for, right. is to create the perfect story, the thing you'd most like to read. Wow, that's amazing. And it's always a moving target. Yes, always. Yeah, you always get a little closer to understanding what it is you like, and it's always interesting when something strikes you suddenly, like, oh, I don't like stories that have more than one character or something like that. So, from what I get from you, like, the the one connective, I mean, there's many connective lines, but yeah. but the one sort of through line of this whole thing is that you're always inquiring you're always dissecting you're all like even in the in the identity building it's like mm -hmm. a very careful plan that you that you sort yeah. of that you sort of built for yourself you're all and even in your work do you think that's why you're so successful because other maybe other artists don't don't uh, test themselves and constantly inquire mm -hmm. and probe um, in the same way well, I think the best artists do, actually, okay. I would say, although I don't know, I'm not sure, it's a tough question to answer, but I would agree with you, I'm plan-based. Mm -hmm. It's like, I am a person who always has a plan. Uh, it doesn't mean that the plan is a good plan, but um, like I always think this, when I look at people around me, I think, where's your plan? Um, like, I've had friends who, you know, failure to launch sort of friends, and I think to myself, like, you've got good qualities, you're smart, you're talented, whatever. Why are things not working out for you? And a lot of the times I'm disappointed and they don't seem to have a plan. And, and it's like, I think like, I always think to myself, well, if I was in their shoes, the first thing I'd do is blah, blah, blah. I would like go back to school mm -hmm. or I would make a zine or, you know, I think that, I just think I'm very oriented towards the idea of like you say, take something apart, figure out what you should do, then do it. Now, that's not a guaranteed like path to success or anything, but it does give you a focus. And then when things, you know, what's not working, your next thought is, what's wrong with this plan? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I see the plan. This is what's wrong with it. Let's rework that. And you don't seem to take it personally. Like when something yeah. is wrong with the plan, you just move on to, okay, I have to analytically figure this out. Not, yeah. oh my God, there's something wrong with me because there's something wrong with this plan. No, not generally. Even though I'm, you know, of course, like all of us, I'm pretty um, self-conscious. Mm -hmm. But I do think you can't be very self-conscious if you want to be an artist. You have to go between the two poles of being like kind of a megalomaniac and being um, self-loathing. It's like you go back and forth. But without the megalomaniac, then you don't, why would you publish anything? You'd be too nervous about getting a bad reaction or whatever. But let me back up and say one thing that I do think is important is you need to have some success to build confidence. Like I've talked with Chester Brown about this lots of times where I say like we've both had like a lot of positive feedback over the years. Um, how well would we, would, have, would we have done if we'd gotten no positive feedback? What if like um, nobody was interested in your comics and you were still like just doing a zine? Would you have the confidence and the drive to keep putting one out every year or whatever? It's a hard question to answer because I do think you really need somebody to be interested in what you do. Right, otherwise you might switch gears entirely. Yeah, you'd say like this, nobody cares. Yeah. yeah. Or you'd be like, I'm no good. 
Right. It's like if I was any good, someone would care. Mm -hmm. So it is important. Like you can't just work in a vacuum. Right. Right. I want to get the sense too of some of the other things you do because it's not just comics. I mean, everything has this sort of uh, New Yorker aesthetic, the 1920s thing that we mm-hmm. that we discussed. And you know, you have your identity. You're 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 sort of dressed as like a what do they call it? A dandy, sort of like gay Talese type type of. Well, I'm just dressed in an old suit and a fedora, and uh, yeah, I'm like right. kind of. Uh, I mean, I I certainly like am willing to. You know, I people notice me. Yeah. Right, and it's it's weird because I'm sure you just made that choice as an individual, mm-hmm. but now there's like a group. There's like a group of people who are intentionally dressing that way. Uh, I suppose, and and like like yeah. I can name like Gates Lees and and people who want to look good, yeah, and, yeah, and stuff like that. Sure, and then that becomes like a group that people like that the media so. and other things have called uh, like dand- dandyism or whatever. Yeah, sure. It becomes like yeah. a movement without meaning to yeah. be right. Absolutely, yeah. So well, certainly a movement with no focus, with no, no focus, yeah. with no focus. Right, like yeah. we just want to look a certain way yeah. and peop- other people have given this name to what yeah. to what we're doing because they've noticed that it's not just one person it's many people who are doing the yeah. same sort of thing well I always think when I come across people like this there's a variety of reasons why people might dress in older styles right. but mostly I think it's people are interested in formality right? or they're interested in the idea of um, dressing up you right. know like the idea of being uh, having the pleasure uh, like clothing is an interesting pleasure mm-hmm. um, it's an aesthetic joy all on its own the idea of like crafting a style and then following through on it my wife is like it's like an a ala- very elaborate wardrobe and um, and the pleasure she takes in like finding clothes and um, displaying them wearing them um, is like you know it's like a pleasure that um, equals like you know any kind of other hobby that people get great joy out of right and associated with that you've mentioned how you've kind of uh, like rejected the modern world in a way like there's a sort yeah, of disdain yeah for the world like in things like it's a good life if you don't weaken there's a nostalgia for, for sure. a certain period of time but there's also a recognition that there's a darkness to that period of time too in terms of social mores and that sort of thing so how do you find balance between I don't like the modern world but I still want to be part of it or I have to be part of it well you have to be part of it it's number one it's like I am a modern person Um, I don't I'm not one of those people who's like oh I should have been born in 1940 that's nonsense Mm -hmm. Um, everybody is from the era they come from and uh, we're shaped by that. If I found myself back in 1940, I would not be happy. Everything about the culture would be wrong to me. I mean, I'd like the way things looked, but talking to other people would be disturbing and strange. Social values would be all wrong. Your interests would be all wrong. If I was back in 1940 with my interest in comic books as an adult medium, there would be no place for me. And in fact, you'd probably be considered kind of stupid because they'd say like, well, if you're interested in writing things for adults, why wouldn't you write a novel? Um, it just was your. I mean, we're, our interest in the pop culture is a result of living in the modern world. People wouldn't even have talked about the pop culture back then. You went and saw a movie, and then they threw it in the garbage. Right. Everything about those time periods would be wrong. And I have no desire to live in 1950, but I'm very interested in the aesthetics of these periods, and that's the key thing. And what I like about much of the aesthetics is it's not just like how things look. It's often 
they're cultural. I mean, I like the formality of that culture. I like the way that there was um, sort of rules, certain kinds, yeah, certain kinds of things, the way people behaved, certain formality of, of even dogma in the culture, like like that a funeral would have been a much bigger deal then than it would be now. For We've become very, very casual. And what I regret isn't that I'm living in 1950. I regret that a lot of the things I find interesting from those periods sort of died out. So, and I blame mostly the hippies, to tell you the truth. I think that I understand why they rejected, why the 60s culture rejected the earlier culture. It had to happen. I'm particularly not interested in the aesthetics of the 60s culture or what comes after. And as each, as time goes on, if you identify yourself more and more with something of a specific time, that time becomes less and less connected to what's going on right now. And you start to feel out of touch and out of place. But mostly what it is, is that you start to become irritated by the fact that everybody doesn't share these feelings. And obviously, like, the cultural products around you become less and less appealing. Mm -hmm. So a movie to me now, it's like, even a serious-minded movie, often I'm put off by the aesthetics of them. I went and saw that film the other day, A Ghost Story, or A Ghost Story, something like that. Right, I saw the trailer. Yeah, and it was... You know, it had its moments, and it was trying to, it was, you know, going for profound. Yet, even just the surface of how the movie was made and the way the people looked and the, the quirky choices made in the storytelling turned me off. I find harder and harder to watch a movie, watch a TV show, read a modern book. Comics are okay, because I feel very much in touch with, like, the kind of aesthetics of underground comics. But I must say, I just feel more and more alienated, and... I guess the point is, I just don't feel like, um, I don't want to join in. Right. So it's like, I am. Uh, I have a rejecting nature connected to it. But you also don't want to take on the conservative values of that time. No. No, I'm a bleeding heart liberal, mm-hmm. and um, have always been. And um, socially, I feel in touch with, in step with the times, although right now, the times are kind of conservative. Yeah. But, um no, I've, the funny thing is, I do think sometimes people think that I'd be the kind of person who'd be like, happy to, let's make America great again. They would, because yeah. they would judge you by what you're wearing and yeah. where you live and yeah. stuff. Yeah, but I, you know, I don't understand personally, well, I mean, I understand, of course I do. Mm-hmm. But I was going to say, that's not how I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognize that the past is not a golden age, and this is not a golden age. There's a lot of people that would right now say, like, we're living in some pinnacle of society, but chances are in 60 years they'll look back at this time and shake their head in exactly the same way. That our right. so, Whatever our social attitudes are right now, they're going to find them ridiculous. Well, f- humanity is fallible, and they always do. They always yeah. act against their own interests sometimes. So. Yeah, it does seem to be the case. Mm-hmm. I'm cynical. It's like, it's funny, I love human culture. And I like people, although I don't necessarily want to be around them that much. But um, but I am pretty cynical about human beings and the ultimate fate, whatever we're going to do. It doesn't look good. Right, right. Yeah. It's amazing. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your other work that you mm-hmm. do, the, the, the other hobbies, the building of the city, the architectural things. Yeah. You walk into this house and it's like a historical... Uh, thing there's like a historical plaque there, mm-hmm. and, you know, Seth's Dominion. That's the city. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about about that? There's also a documentary associated yeah. with that. Tell me a little bit about your work outside of comics. 
Well, I mean, initially I just wanted to do comics. And that mm. was it was simple. And when I was in art school, I was not much interested in other um, uh, mediums. Although, I mean, I was interested enough that it was an eye opener to me to meet other people who were painters or sculptors or whatever. Um, but I mean, for a long time, comics were my big interest, and even like in my collecting and my thinking, I was very absorbed with comics. But probably sometime, I don't know, in the '90s. I started to get interested in design, and um, initially I think it was with book design. I'd been working as an illustrator on the side too to make a living, so I was often involved in magazines and publications and stuff like that. But um, I think it was getting interested in book design that sort of opened the door to say, like, there's other things beside comics. And I would also say uh, as well with that is I've always enjoyed making work that isn't meant to be shown to other people. So even during those years, I was always working in a sketchbook or something that was private work. And I would say just in the simple process of the last 20 years, my interests have just expanded. So it's gone from wanting to, you know, it's interesting, like getting very involved in book design or, or becoming, um, trying to become proficient at hand lettering to moving on to, um, you know, like designing things for like a stained glass window or working with, uh, I've been working with some wrought iron people, with some ceramic artists and getting people to make things for me that I can't do myself, but like opening the door to a wider variety of private work that gives you a bigger range of personal expression. So I would say I'm, I'm pretty much interested in just about anything design related now. So it's like, I, you know, I, Got a show coming up where I'll be. There's silk screens in it. There's uh, some ceramic work I've done. There's some sculptural stuff in it. There'll be like a, a, some textile art. It's like kind of all over the place. And um, where's that going to be? Here in Guelph, there's a, I have there's a gallery downtown called the Renan Isaacs Contemporary Art Gallery, and I've showed there two times before now. And so usually once a year, I will put on a show there to sell art because that's a good way to make money too. And, but this is the first show I've done with her that will be a more sort of a mixed media show. The past ones have been more straightforwardly just paintings or drawings. Mm. But I, get, I guess I would just say that my interests have expanded. Right. And I feel like I'm building a bigger body of work now that isn't just about storytelling. Yeah. And you mentioned that like you like work, some work that's private. Yeah. But even the work outside of... Uh, your comics work is getting recognition. The it architectural is. Yeah. work. It's not meant to be private, but it is private. Uh, uh, let me put it this way. It's not meant to be shown, but it can be shown. Right. So I think that's one of the great conceits I've figured out early on in working in a sketchbook is that the freedom of working in a sketchbook is you don't have to show anybody the work. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean you won't. And in right. fact, as time goes on, you start to realize you probably will. But it allows you a certain kind of freedom to say, like, well... If it doesn't, if it's no good, I don't have to show it to anybody. When you're working on a comic page, for example, it's very different because you know the purpose of that. You're gonna, you're gonna do your best. You're gonna publish it. Um, there's no safety valve of like, if I don't like it, I won't use it. You have to use it. That's the next page in the story. Right. Uh, the sketchbook is always like in that quality of I don't have to show it to, buy, to anybody. And each one of these works I work on too fall in that category too. Right. The Seth's Dominion, for mm. those who don't know, is a city that you designed? Yeah. It, was, it wasn't planned to be a city. It was just a project. Mm -hmm. uh, long story short, I was planning a story about a graphic novel to do someday that would be five short stories, and I thought I would link them together by having them in the same city. 
And then I thought, what would the city be? And then I started to think, maybe I'd open it with a chapter of the history of the city I thought might be a good opener. And so then I thought, well, that's a big task. Got to make up the history of the city. So I thought I will, I've got years to go, I thought on this, because I was working on Clyde Fans. So I thought, I'll just, I'll start making up the city. And I thought the easiest way to do it would be to um, make up a business, write it down in a little book, and then just keep doing that kind of stuff. And eventually I thought connections will form. And in time, the history of this city will grow. And uh, somewhere early on in that process, I made a model of one of the little buildings that I was, one of the businesses. And I enjoyed it. It was just, I don't know why I did it, um, just for fun. And after I made that first one, which was very crude, mm-hmm. um, I thought, oh, well, this was fun. I'll, I'll do this for each of the businesses as I work on it. And after a point, I got about 20 or maybe even 10. I got interest. I was like, oh, well, this is actually more fun than making up the history of the city. So I'm, I'm still making up the history of the city. It's been year, tw- 20 years of working on that. But um, eventually the accumulated models started to build up in my basement. And, um, I probably and had are the books 50. still connected to, in the city? They are. They're, They're all... still connected. It's all about this place, Dominion, yeah. which I now know quite well. I was right that eventually things connected. And um, it's still, I could write about it for the rest of my life. Um, there's a never-ending source of information in this imaginary city. And none of that information will probably be used for anything. It's like, who knows? I mean, I set stories in Dominion is where my stories take place, but none of that information practically is ever available. It's like a Bible for like a television show or like something else. It's like, a, yeah, it's a very complicated list of random information that um, gives me a deep background for the setting like George Sprott takes place in Dominion, yeah. and um, I know the neighborhoods he's moving through. I know everything about where he is, but very little of that information is translated is transmitted in the story itself. Just enough that the reader needs. Is Guelph an influence in Dominion? A little bit, but not so much. Okay, I would say that Dominion is a city about the size of Hamilton. And I would say that its influence has come from all over. But the initial and a lot of the primary ones are still Toronto. Cool. Interesting. So the the models basically were just a byproduct. Mm -hmm. And then eventually a byproduct that became a project on its own. Mostly because around the the 40 mark, when I had about 40 buildings, um, a curator from the AGO came over to visit me to talk about doing a show. And he saw the models. And then he was like, oh, we should include these. And then when those went out, it sort of changed the nature of what was just a private project for fun into a bigger project, which um, I just officially finished uh, this year. It's on display at the AGO again right now. Right. And there are 100 buildings now. And that was, at some point, I decided 100 buildings will be where I stop building them. So even though, who knows, I might build some more. Right, you might need them for future stories and things. Probably not. I I can just draw a picture now. (laughs) But the funny thing is, they take up a lot of space. Mm -hmm. So I said to myself, you can't keep building these forever. I've got a storage unit, and, you know, at some point, storage unit's going to be filled to the brim. And at some point, did somebody try to, like, recreate these buildings as actual buildings or we did do one life-size one it wasn't really life-size but it was like big enough that you could go inside it Mm -hmm. and we did a stage set in um, Vancouver that was kind of in the same vein just recently where I did a quite big elaborate cardboard set Mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun that's really amazing so where do you where do you go from here what is your next move yeah you sort of alluded to 
like the deconstruction of your next of your next work that you want yeah. to do. But now that you've you're very like established, you have this identity. You talk about microcosms, and I feel like yeah. you've built your own microcosm. You like Pretty stories much. that are microcosms, yeah. and this itself, the living room we're sitting in, is a is a That's microcosm. True. Yeah. So how do you uh, reach new heights and reach your next goal? What's the next evolution of of Seth? It's all small steps. I always think that way. Um, the interesting thing is, I'm always project oriented. So, like each, it's I've never been. Like it's funny when I, again. I always bring up Chester because we talk a lot. And um, like I was talking to Chester, and I was like, I never come up with a project or a book. I never come up with a book that I think like people will want to read. That's not how I'm thinking. I don't think I'm going to put this book together and maybe it'll get on the New York Times bestseller list. I do think a lot of people who work in publishing think that way because they kind of have to. You think to yourself, like, I'd like to write a book about steam engines, but nobody's going to buy a book right. about steam engines. Right, it needs to be profitable. Engines. I need to make yeah. money here. So you say, I'm going to write a book about, I'm going to call it, like, um, how steam changed the world or something. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, it's got a bit of a hook. Maybe I can sell that. Right. Um, and, and, and I think I never think in terms of the end product. So it's always just like another step in a process. So the next book, like I said, is the next step in a process of trying to figure out exactly what story I want to tell. Um, I'm not entirely like living in a bubble. I do think about how, you know, how to present it to a reader and will they be engaged and all that sort of thing. But it's mostly for me. And so each of the other projects I'm working on are in that vein too. I'm like working down refining of ideas. So. Like this show I mentioned that I'm going to have here in town next, this year is like a series of refined ideas about um, inner spaces, like, right. like sort of um, these metaphorical rooms I've become interested in. So I'm building some kind of little sculptures that refer to these rooms. There are prints related to them. This is all part of a kind of a narrowing down of thought process that um, I think is like where you go as an artist. You just continue to refine your thoughts and or, or your your themes, if you want to call them that. Um, oh, let me just say this: When I was twenty, I thought that I would work on a whole bunch of different types of stories. I thought I'll do a romance book, and then I'll do like maybe an adventure or something. But at fifty, I'm like, no, you, you find out you've got a theme that you're working on, and some you don't know it, but somehow or other, your ideas just get tighter and tighter. And by the time you're in middle age, you realize, I. I didn't do those other books because my, it's not where my interests really lie. Right. The brand that you built initially becomes more yeah, refined. Exactly. And as you become more successful with that brand, yeah. uh, you, you focus on it. Yeah, you, and you realize that's how your mind works. Right. It's funny. It's like your mind does work in some specific way that is a mystery. Uh, why you're interested in things, why you think the way you do. Every once in a while, like, you'll write, I find this happens, I'll write down a note to myself, like, and I'll say, like, um, something about the city or something about whatever, the next story, and then I'll lose that note. I'll be like, oh, shit, I lost that. That was an important thought. So I'll write, try to remember it and write it down again, say, like, a month later. Then, like, a week later, you might find the original note. And you like put them side by side, and it's like it's exactly the same wording. Well, there's like this weird serendipitous. I mean, yeah. if you believe in God, you'd call it that. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you just. I just think, think like your brain way. has a brain. pattern. Yeah, exactly. That's like that pattern made you write the sentence exactly the same way, and even though you were trying to remember it, you didn't realize you would get it that close. Right. And I think that's the funny part. It's like these ideas you have, 
it's not a mystery that uh, of why you why you're going this way. It is who you are. Right. Um, there's like this really deep unconscious recall. Yeah, there's something yeah. in you that that does get like that is primary. I don't know what it is. You know, maybe you're born with it. Maybe you get it in your early years, but you keep you. There's stuff you keep coming back to. Mm-hmm. It's like, and you can't help it. Right. You think you picked them, but maybe they picked you. So at this point, that thought of, I thought I was going to do a lot of different stories. I mean, maybe if you would have, if you would have tried to do that, you would have found yourself coming back to the same sorts of things anyway. Yeah. About a year ago, I said to myself, I should write some science fiction, I thought. So I thought that would be a stretch, change things. So I sat down and I wrote three science fiction stories as possible graphic novels. And when I finished them, I thought, well, they're kind of about science fiction. I mean, the, the, one of them was an end-of-the-world story, one of them was time travel, but, you know, what they really were were just Seth stories. They were just all about memory and rumination, and and they were exactly the themes I always work with. I just, you know, tried to spruce them up with some something different. Um, I didn't plan them to be like my usual stuff. Right. In fact, I was trying to do the opposite. But I think you just have stuff that you're interested in. Do you ever look back on how fortunate you are? Because... You wouldn't be able to create uh, your own world so successfully had you not been successful. You'd be yes. more desperate to find oh, no. it's things, all, right? Luck is very powerful. Yeah. I think you have to have some talent, you have to have intelligence, but you have to have luck. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that was lucky for cartoonists of my generation, although we wouldn't have thought it at the time, is that we were kind of in on the ground floor. So even though it did, when we started doing alternative comics back in the 80s, mm-hmm. there did not seem to be any future in it. It was, I know that I, when I started doing those comics, I never thought I could make a living or survive or get any attention. The world looked very disinterested. It wasn't until like around the, the turn of the century that things changed. But I realize now, just being in on the ground floor, having spent years establishing an identity and a name, by the time we got into this century, gave me a ton of opportunities that somebody who was just starting out in the year 2005 does not have. They've got way more competition. Um, and it's like it's a lot harder if you were an alternative cartoonist right now to suddenly uh, get that much uh, identity where people know who you are. And it feels like everyone has seen everything already. So it's much harder yeah. to impress them. It is. It is. Although I must say I'm constantly impressed by the new artists that come along. Right. There's some pretty great you know, really smart people, great talents that have showed up. That's amazing. And you, in order to maintain this, I mean, it's pretty expensive. Like, if, if you mm-hmm. decide that you want to live in this time period, yeah, you have to make enough money to get the antiques and do the do it's the true. things. And... Although this is forty years of collecting, right? Here, right. So. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but it's true. You have to make a living, and yeah. to make a living, I found well, like you know, it's funny. They often said that uh, the future would mean diversifying if you want to make a living. Uh, being an artist is about diversification. I do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I design books. I do art for galleries. I. Uh, I do private commissions. I do comics. Uh, you know, it's all over the place, mm-hmm. and uh, and um, and thank God for government grants too. Right, these things are important to keep you to keep you going. Right, because I don't want to leave people with the idea that you can just do one thing and you'll be you'll be successful. I mean, yeah. you do many different things within the same aesthetic, yeah. and yeah, that's exactly. very different from yeah. just doing one yeah. thing. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I was an illustrator in magazines for about twenty years, and. During those 20 years, when I was hired, nobody knew my comics mm-hmm. in the magazines. They just would hire you for your style. 
So like people would like, I would be doing business magazines and stuff and nobody knew who I was working for knew anything about my comics work. But now things are, the diff are different. People call me up because they know me primarily as an artist and then they want me to do work for them as an artist. That is, it's like that took a long time to get to that point where it wasn't just about they wanted somebody who could draw something old fashioned looking. Now they want you because they know your work. And that is like the ultimate goal you want as an artist, but that's a long process and that means you got to find a way to survive for a long time. And art, picking a choice of an artist is like saying, I may not, you know, i got to struggle. Yeah. That's a big part of it. And it yeah. may not pay off. Yeah, yeah. You're taking a risk. You're gambling on yourself. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. So how, how do you want to end this? Like... Where can people find you if they want to know like where your gallery showings are? Yeah. What do you have coming up? That's um, a good question. Because I keep a very low internet footprint. Right, exactly. Um, I would say the best thing to do would be always just to, to go to Drawn and Quarterly, my, my main publisher, and see you know on their website. I try to inform them of things to put on on Twitter or whatever. Right. Um, but yeah, I, it's I've. It's sometimes I think it would be smart to have a website, but on the other side, I like to be inaccessible. So, right. uh, good luck. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good because yeah. the adventure is part of it. The journey yeah. to find out about you yeah. is part of it. Yeah. No, I like to, I definitely like you. Microcosm's the right word. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. And, uh, uh, my pleasure. We'll uh, see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.